Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. The death toll from the earthquake in Morocco continues to rise. We hear from a survivor how she escaped and saved her neighbors. President Biden commemorates the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 attacks from Alaska. That's after wrapping up his high-stakes trip to India and Vietnam. How does the New York City Fire Museum keep the memory of the 9-11 heroes alive? Hear from a historian about the museum's impactful tribute. Escaped murderer Daniela Cavacante is still at large after a 12-day manhunt. Authorities believe he's still in Pennsylvania but has altered his appearance. In the Texas Attorney General's impeachment trial, a whistleblower said Paxton left him no choice. The former deputy AG said Paxton pushed him to investigate a baseless complaint. And the Kremlin confirms that Russian President Putin will meet with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Kim's armored train reportedly departed for Russia today. We open with some updates on the earthquake in Morocco. The death toll from the Friday earthquake has risen to more than 2,800. When we descended to the ground floor after the quake, the door was blocked by rocks, but we escaped through the neighbor's house. We found a woman and her son and a small girl stuck in rubble with only their heads appearing. We started dragging until my husband came and helped us save them. The 6.8 magnitude earthquake struck late on Friday in the High Atlas Mountains. State TV reported the death toll had risen over 2,860. Over 2,500 people were injured. It was the North African country's deadliest earthquake since 1960. Authorities haven't issued any estimates for the number of people missing. Much of the quake zone is in hard-to-reach areas, and rescuers are racing against time to find survivors. Search teams from Spain, Britain, and Qatar are also joining. But rescuers said the chances are low because traditional mud-brick houses are common in the region, and they have crumbled in the quake. President Biden is commemorating the 9-11 attacks. He's back in the U.S. from a high-stakes visit to India and Vietnam over the weekend, countering the influence of China. NTD's Iris Tao is in New Delhi, India, with the latest on the president. President Biden is expected to arrive at the White House at around midnight tonight. And that's after he was here in New Delhi, India over the weekend for the G20 summit and later in Vietnam to boost highs with the country. He was later in Alaska commemorating the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. We know the distance did not dull or diminish the pain we felt all across the nation of September 11th. Because we know that on this day 22 years ago from this base, were scrambled and high alert to escort planes through the airspace. A lot happened in the past few days. President Biden said the G20 summit was an important moment for the U.S. to demonstrate its global leadership. And while in Vietnam, the Vietnamese government announced that it's now promoting the U.S. to the highest level of relationship and calling it a comprehensive strategic partner. And President Biden, while in Hanoi, said this. This new elevated status force, prosperity, and security in one of the most consequential regions in the world. 
And China was really a big focus in all of this. Had the G20 summit, President Biden really tried to rally other countries to join the U.S.'s effort to try to invest more in developing countries with an ultimate goal of countering China's Belt and Road Initiative. And in Vietnam, the elevation of U.S.-Vietnam relationship was also seen as a major move to counter China's influence in Asia. But when it comes to the possibility of having conflicts with China, President Biden cited China's struggling economy and suggesting that Xi Jinping could be too occupied with dealing with domestic troubles to start a conflict. And President Biden also said that he did meet with China's number two official, Premier Li Chiang, which was a surprise to us all because the White House kept telling us that the two had no plans to meet. But while Biden was elaborating on what the two talked about, the White House press secretary cut him off abruptly. Southern Hemisphere had access to changes, had access. We, it wasn't confrontational at all. You came up with thank, thank you, everybody. This ends thank, the count press thank, conference. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. And after arriving at the White House at around midnight tonight, President Biden will have nothing scheduled for Tuesday. But on Wednesday, he's traveling to Virginia, where he's going to participate in a campaign reception. Reporting New Delhi, India, Iris Tao, NTD News. Firefighters have always been a symbol of bravery and sacrifice. The New York City Fire Museum takes that tribute to another level. Entities Jason Perry attended the museum's wreath-laying ceremony dedicated to the 9-11 heroes. The New York City Fire Museum, a place that doesn't just house history, it honors heroes. The museum has a permanent memorial dedicated to the 343 firefighters who made the ultimate sacrifice on September 11, 2001. But what makes this memorial different is it includes the actual photos of the firefighters who died. I mean, I've been involved with the fire department my whole life. My father was a firefighter, worked in this very firehouse. I spoke with Gary Urbanowitz, a historian for the New York City Fire Department and a former director at the museum. We had one firefighter who had 10 children they left behind. We had firefighters, we had brothers who died in the fire. We had fathers and sons who died. So, you know, it, they're people, they weren't just numbers. So today we throw numbers around, but we all have to remember those faces on that wall, which is what makes this monument so different than a lot of the others. It has their faces and that's the most important part. And with his close ties to firefighters in New York City, I asked if there was anything the city needs now to prevent another terrorist attack. We know that there are people around the world who don't like the way we live our lives here and that want to take and that want to, and that want to take that away from us. So I think we all have to do our part. You know, they say if you see something, say something. That's not just a phrase. That's really true. And as New Yorkers, we have to watch out for each other. And Jennifer Brown, the Fire Museum's current executive director, shed light on another aspect of 9/11. As we know, we're 22 years in now. There's a whole generation of people who weren't alive or they were very young on 9/11. And so we also see the museum and the memorial room as a place where they can really learn about that day and the aftermath. And she added this. You know, I think for like all of us, we said never forget. So at the museum, we are honoring the department 365 days a year. And certainly on 9-11, it's a very solemn and important day for the department. And we also remember those first responders who continued saving lives while being covered in World Trade Center dust. There are now a total of 341 New York City Fire Department firefighters, paramedics, and civilian support staff who died from post-9-11 illnesses. And they are memorialized at the FDNY World Trade Center Memorial Wall, according to the Uniformed Firefighters Association. Being here at Ground Zero allows us to remember the lives that were lost on that day and the heroes that stepped up. Many people come here and promise to never forget. Jason Perry.
NCD News, New York. Convicted murderer Daniela Calvacante is still at large after escaping from prison 12 days ago. The reward for finding him has now been increased to $25,000. Authorities are confident he's still in Pennsylvania. Police say that since escaping, Calvacante has altered his appearance and stolen a van. We remain concerned that Cavalcante will attempt to steal another vehicle to, to facilitate his escape. As a reminder, we ask for the public's help by familiarizing themselves with the updated photographs and description of Cavalcante, to check security cameras they have, and to call us immediately if they believe they may have seen him. Cavacante was found guilty of first-degree murder last month. He had stabbed to death his former girlfriend in front of her two children in 2021. Cavacante was serving a life sentence. Police say there will be a stronger presence of law enforcement in southeastern Pennsylvania until Cavacante is caught. Why did employees of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton report him to the FBI? Today, one of them gave his version of the events that have now culminated in an impeachment trial. NTD's Arlene Richards has the details. Whistleblower Mark Penley, a former deputy attorney general, thought he had no other choice but to report Texas AG Ken Paxton to the FBI. He testified that he thought real estate mogul Nate Paul was bribing Paxton. I was concerned the attorney general was turning against me, that he might fire me because I wouldn't agree with what he wanted. And I was trying to find a way to prove to him that Mr. Paul's theories had no merit and we had no business taking Mr. Paul's side against the federal authorities who were investigating him for criminal activity. On Monday, the prosecution attempted to establish that Paxton may have been working for Paul and that Paxton pushed state deputy AGs to probe federal investigators, which Penley said was baseless. Here's the details of Penley's testimony. Paul was the subject of a federal investigation. Federal investigators searched his home and offices, but he complained to the Texas AG's office that an assistant AG had altered a search warrant affidavit. Penley said Paul couldn't prove the affidavit was altered, and he told Paxton so. But Paxton wasn't happy and got the help of an outside attorney. Penley said the attorney was using a criminal process to investigate a civil matter, and he was furious that Paxton was allowing it. Penley and other whistleblowers were concerned that they would be fired for not supporting the outside investigation. Ultimately, they reported the investigation to the FBI in an effort to stop it. The meeting lasted almost four hours. It consisted of us sitting around a conference table with two FBI agents and our attorney, Johnny Sutton, was present. On cross-examination by the defense, Penley admitted that the investigation conducted by the outside attorney was legal. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who is presiding over the trial, has stated that the proceeding could be complete as early as Thursday. He expects the trial to continue every day, including Saturday and Sunday, until the senators reach a decision. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Turning to Trump's federal election case, the former president this afternoon asked Judge Tanya Chutkin to recuse herself. The filing cites negative statements the judge made before the case began, which it says inherently disqualify her. It states that despite the judge's good intentions to conduct a fair trial, her previous comments taint the proceedings and that the public would reasonably question whether or not she made impartial decisions. 
Russia confirms that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will meet with President Vladimir Putin. The meeting is said to take place in the coming days. It comes amid concerns that North Korea is planning to arm Russia. Putin reportedly invited Kim to Russia. Moscow did not say the purpose, time or location of the meeting. Putin is currently at the Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok. It's a Russian city not far from the border with North Korea and the site of Putin and Kim's first meeting in 2019. It's likely Putin will stay and Kim will go to Vladivostok. South Korean media cites unnamed government officials to report that a train has already departed North Korea's capital, headed to Russia. Hope for an American man who's been trapped in a cave for over a week. 40-year-old Mark Dickey was exploring an underground cave in Turkey. After reaching a depth of over 3,000 feet, Dickey began to experience gastrointestinal bleeding. This made it hard for him to move. Rescuers are feeding him intravenously because he's unable to eat. Over 150 people are trying to save him, but they face steep slopes and tight rock tunnels. Rescuers expect to get him out by tomorrow morning. When we return, more COVID boosters coming soon. The FDA today giving the green light for new vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. New York City must reinstate 10 teachers who were fired for not getting the COVID-19 vaccine. A judge making the ruling, but is the city complying? Generic drugs are supposed to be cheap, but they're frequently not. Why is that? We ask an economist, find out what he says about the healthcare system and insurance. And California lawmakers approve a bill that requires judges to consider gender affirmation in custody cases. It's now heading to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk. Find out more after the break. Welcome back. The FDA is approving new COVID boosters. The administration today gave the green light for new vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. The new shots are supposed to target the XBB15 variant, which was the dominant variant early on in the summer. Currently, other variants are more dominant. The FDA and the pharmaceutical companies say data indicates the booster shots also target these newer variants. However, it's not exactly clear if that's the case. The new vaccinations are reportedly scheduled to be available to Americans as early as this week. A win for teachers in New York, fired for not getting the COVID vaccine. A judge ruled the city must reinstate 10 of them with back pay. NTD's Arian Postar spoke with their lawyer. A New York State Supreme Court judge ruled that 10 teachers who were fired for not taking the COVID vaccine have to be reinstated. New York City fired the teachers during the COVID pandemic over a vaccine mandate for city employees. The mandate was lifted in February, and last week, the judge ordered the city to hire the teachers again with back pay. Every teacher in question is expected to receive around $200,000. That's after being without a job for over two years. They're very happy to finally be winning relief. Sujada Gibson partnered with Children's Health Defense to be the lead attorney in the case, representing the teachers against New York City. She says New York's Department of Education hasn't hired the 10 teachers back. Despite the judge's ruling, the city might even appeal the ruling. 
The judge decided that it doesn't make sense to keep unvaccinated teachers out of classrooms where most students aren't vaccinated either. He thus granted religious exemptions. Why was this decision only made now in 2023? What changed? The court is slow. Every other school district in the entire state felt that it was safe and appropriate to allow teachers to test in lieu of vaccination. New York City is the only school district that didn't allow that, and they have a burden under the law to justify that, and they didn't do that. That's why it was overturned now. This is the first time a court has asked, did they justify the burden? She added that the recent ruling only applies to 10 teachers and that they're still working on getting thousands more reinstated. The judge's ruling comes amid a slight uptick of hospitalizations related to COVID, but there's still less than there were during winter and spring of this year. Still, some places around the U.S. are returning to recommending or even mandating the use of face masks. How will this court decision affect possible future vaccine mandates? I think that it, uh, it sets precedent that will be very useful in future mandates. I think that the DOE will have to justify this with real science next time and not uh, hope or speculation. Officials around the country are currently recommending people to get vaccinated to be better protected against new COVID variants. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Generic drugs are expensive, but they're not supposed to be. They came out after the original drug's patent expires, so they should be affordable. But in America's complicated healthcare system, this isn't always the case. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Generic drugs are not supposed to be expensive. In America, they are. Generic drugs are basically copies of brand name drugs. Pharmaceutical companies spend over a billion dollars to create these brand name drugs. They then typically get the exclusive right to sell them for around 20 years. After these rights expire, generic drugs then arrive onto the market. They're supposed to be much cheaper because far less work went into making them. But the Wall Street Journal found that insurers are charging way more than they have to. A cancer drug called Gleevec can be bought at $55 a month, but many insurance plans are paying over 100 times that amount. We have this healthcare system that is totally muddled. You know, it's it. The, there's lots of um, ambiguity in terms of how things are priced. Economist Paul Mueller says there are many factors that make things so expensive. Reasons include lack of transparency, complex regulations, and chief among them, lack of competition. The whole healthcare system is sort of built around these massive insurance companies, and you kind of, it's difficult to shop for insurance, right? Again, it's very different from the grocery store where you pick and choose what you want. Some insurance companies own the pharmacies that sell these drugs. For insurers like CVS Health and Cigna, they can charge over $6,600 a month for the cancer drug Gleevec. The insurers say their drug prices vary by pharmacy and location and that most patients end up saving money. We reached out to CVS Health and Cigna, but they didn't respond before airtime. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. The California State Assembly has passed a bill that would require judges to consider a parent's affirmation of a child's gender identity in custody cases. The bill now heads to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk. NTD's Jason Blair has more. California Assembly Bill 957 now waits for the governor's decision after passing State Assembly late last week. In custody cases, it would require a judge to consider whether or not a parent affirms the child's identified gender. 
The bill was authored by Assemblymember Lori Wilson and co-authored by Assemblymember Scott Weiner. After passing the state Senate 30 to 9 on September 6th, it went to the Assembly floor where it passed on Friday. Because that is our duty as parents to affirm our children. But some lawmakers argued against the bill. And what decades of studies have shown is that youth dealing with gender dysphoria, 65 to 95 percent, eventually identify with their biological sex when they get to adolescence. Elon Musk responded on X after the bill passed, saying it is, quote, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And what it would actually mean is that if you disagree with the other parent about sterilizing your child, you lose custody. It passed with 57 eyes and 16 noes. The bill now heads to Governor Gavin Newsom to either sign or veto. Reporting from California, Jason Blair, NTD News. An auto workers union is threatening to strike against General Motors, Ford and Stellantis. That is, if a contract deal is not reached before the current one expires this Friday at midnight. A survey of nearly 100 investors by Morgan Stanley found that 82 percent were expecting a strike. Here to discuss is NTD Business's host, Don Ma. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here on a Monday. So what is the situation like right now? Yeah, sure. So over the weekend, uh, UAW President Sean Fain uh, met with Ford and GM, and, and today he met with Stellantis. Uh, he, he said today that the union is prepared to negotiate around the clock 24-7 uh, with the Detroit three automakers. You know, so far, uh, all three automakers have rejected uh, some of the union's demands. Uh, that's including a 32-hour work week. But Stellantis did say today that it has reached a tentative agreement with the United Auto Workers on health and safety measures. And Don, how likely are we to see a strike this week and what would be the impact on consumers? Right. Uh, so the Biden administration is actually expecting a deal between the United Auto Workers Union and, and the automakers. Um, and the administration has deployed top officials to actually help facilitate the talks. Um, so, but if a strike does indeed happen, the impacts would, would be noticeable uh, by some consumers, especially those in the market for a new car. Because first of all, UAW contract talks could cause wage inflation in the range of perhaps 20 to 40 percent over the next four-year period. And, you know, that could potentially be passed on to consumers. And on top of that, second of all, the, the Detroit three automakers account for, you know, around 40 percent of new U.S. light vehicle sales by units. So auto supply could also be impacted. Uh, especially those popular models, uh, they could become even scarcer if uh, a strike drags on, which could then end up costing consumers uh, more if dealers charge more than the sticker price. But I want to uh, highlight some good news as well. Um, if the strike is short or limited to a certain factories, um, that actually isn't likely to raise uh, prices for most vehicles, which is good. And Don, what is the dynamic here between the union, the auto workers, and the car makers? Who has the advantage? 
Right, that's, that's a very good question, but it's hard to say right now because the companies have a lot of cash on hand to potentially withstand a strike. Um, so they have that defense there. Uh, GM, Ford, and Stellantis have continued to run their factories around the clock uh, to build up supplies on dealer lots. At the end of August, uh, the three automakers actually collectively had enough vehicles to last for 70 days. So that's a buffer for them. But, you know, this doesn't mean that if a strike indeed does happen, it's not going to hurt them. Uh, because according to some estimates, if, if a strike against all three companies lasted just for 10 days, it could cost them nearly a billion dollars. Uh, and, and if we're looking back during a 40-day strike uh, in 2019, uh, GM alone lost $3.6 billion. And now if this strike were to happen, what would be the impact on the economy at large? Right. Uh, according to economic consulting firm Anderson Economic Group, a strike against General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis of just 10 days, it would actually reduce the U.S. gross domestic product by $5.6 billion. And that's not all. It could also push the Michigan economy into a recession, and the Biden administration doesn't really want that uh, with the election uh, coming up. A lot at stake indeed, Don Ma. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tiffany. Coming up, did the U.S. come out of the G20 summit with the upper hand against China? Find out what a former national security advisor says. As the 2024 presidential campaign ramps up, each candidate is facing unique challenges. We speak with an Epic Times columnist for his analysis. And a witness to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy speaks out for the first time in 60 years. His revelation refutes a key claim about the bullet that struck the president. We'll have details after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The death toll from the Morocco earthquake has risen to over 2,800. Rescuers said the traditional mud brick houses in the region reduced the chances of finding survivors because they had crumbled. President Biden is back in the U.S. following his trip to India and Vietnam. The U.S. relationship with Vietnam is now bolstered to that of a comprehensive strategic partner. Today, the president also commemorated the 22nd anniversary of 9-11 from Alaska. Convicted murderer Daniela Cavalcante is still on the loose after escaping prison 12 days ago. Authorities are confident he's still in Pennsylvania but has altered his appearance. Russia confirms that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will meet with President Vladimir Putin in the coming days. Kim's train reportedly departed earlier today. This comes amid concerns that North Korea will be supplying arms to Russia. And now for analysis on the G20 summit and President Biden's stop in Vietnam, we hear from the former Deputy National Security Advisor at the White House. Steve Yates, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you back on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. President Biden just wrapped up his trip to India with a G20 summit. To begin, what are your big takeaways from this? Well, first, I think that Russia and China together have made very clear that they are trying to invest in an alternative 
organization in the world that excludes the United States, and that's the BRICS summit. So it was not surprising to me that among the reasons why uh, Xi Jinping did not attend is probably because they place a higher strategic priority on engaging at BRICS. Uh, even there, she was partially engaged. He uh, missed key parts of that gathering. Uh, but there's definitely some strategic shifting going on, uh, and I guess some questions about how significant it is so far. And given that strategic shifting, President Biden also made a stop in Vietnam. And while in Hanoi, he said that expanding relations with Vietnam was, quote, not about containing China, but rather having a stable base. So what do you make of his comments here? Well, I just think it's very unfortunate that President Biden engages in kind of the stale rhetoric of 70 years ago with regard to dealing with China. Obviously, China's changed. The world has changed. You would think post-Russian invasion of Ukraine that, the, that for the United States, our leaders would speak in different terms. I mean, this containment versus engagement debate is what used to inform what the approach was to the Soviet Union and Russia that followed and NATO's role. And all of that failed. And so in this case, we have China amping threats against Taiwan and the free world, the South China Sea, uh, affecting Vietnam in ways that make a Communist Party-led country actually comfortable saying that they are ready to kind of counterbalance China's influence. So it's kind of oddly out of step to have the president playing defensive word games that really favor China while he's trying to say, we're going to help our allies stand up. And on that note, China recently released a new map where they claim large swaths of the South China Sea or areas claimed by Vietnam and the Philippines. China sees that area as their backyard. They probably see the U.S. increasing presence there as entering their backyard. They've been increasing their presence in the U.S. backyard, as in Latin America or even Cuba. So given these tensions, where do you see U.S.-China ties going? Well, they're basically going where Xi Jinping and China choose to drive them because the Biden administration seems to be in reactive mode. Uh, we've sent a series of cabinet-level officials over to China, begging them to come back to the warm bath of conventional thinking on dealing with U.S.-China relations and putting commercial engagement first. This is wildly out of step with what Xi Jinping's China has been doing in terms of its treatment of America and our allies, and it's wildly out of step with America perceptions of China manipulating the outbreak of COVID and the consequences, the spy balloon, unfair trade and manufacturing supply chain dependence, a whole host of things that, you know, basically is incompatible with this old approach that President Biden kind of recycled, dusted off and tried to trot out again at this summit. And now, as we look at this push and pull between the two countries, General Spaulding tweeted out that, quote, China is resource constrained while the U.S. is not, adding that take away American tech, talent and capital, and they, as in China, fold like a cheap tent. What do you make of that? Well, this was a debate between uh, a set of experts that tried to say that China is on the rise and America's on a decline, echoing Chinese Communist Party talking points, uh, that tried to indicate that, you know, America's best days are behind, uh, China's a powerhouse on manufacturing. And basically, General Spaulding is making a very valid analytical point that China's in this position because we did that. We 
put those resources in place. We invested in those supply chains. There was a lot of outside assistance that built China into this role and a lot of mistakes by Westerners that made us dependent on them as a sole source. And so uh, General Spalding is right that if we realign our priorities, do more to engage our own resource base, process our own materials, and put a priority on manufacturing at home, even if a little more expensive, strategically, we have options. China doesn't. China is dependent on this gravy train continuing. And right now, its economy is shaky. And if we, if we cut back, on this, it's much more damaging to them to attack us than it is for us to pull back from them. Sounds like there is a solution here. Well, Steve Yates, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. And turning now to domestic events, the 2024 presidential candidates are making their case before the American people. To help us navigate the ups and downs of the race, we spoke with Epic Times columnist Roger Simon and director of the Epic TV series, The Presidential Roller Coaster 2024. Roger Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Great to be here. Roger, the 2024 election season is ramping up. We have the Republican frontrunners, former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who were in Iowa over the weekend to try and win some votes. Now, if we look at the latest polls, the one showed today, it shows Trump is leading DeSantis by nearly 50 points. And DeSantis is falling a bit since his earlier popularity. Why do you think that is? I think he's got a boredom issue. Also, he's got an issue that people don't like that he's very much backed by PACs, and that's gotten around, whereas uh, Trump probably is backed by PACs a bit, too, but he, he's able to disguise it better. Also, he's got his own personal heroics against the justice system. I think the big issue on the Republican side is what are all these guys doing? I mean, even Ramaswamy, who in the poll today has come up again on almost equal to uh, DeSantis, but I don't know where he's going either. I mean, I think this has been 50-point lead forever. And speaking of Ramaswamy, you've interviewed him before. He is rising in the polls, as you mentioned. How do you see the public responding to his campaign? Well, I think, you know, he's an original guy. He's very bright, uh, sometimes too bright for his britches, but it, I would say mostly not. And also, um, he's in the, he's a, he represents the same thing Trump represented, which is someone who is not a standard politician. And people like that now. They don't want to hear from the same old, so, same old. So that's an advantage, but it's not going to get him the nomination. It might get him the vice presidential nomination. And now in the Republican Party, who do you see as the strongest? Trump is leading in all the polls. He does have all his legal cases. Can he balance that? Yes, I think he's doing it very well. I think actually the legal cases are helping him rather than hurting him because the general feeling of the Republican electorate, uh, most of it anyway, is the legal cases are a bunch of hooey. So <laughs> uh, I don't think he's got a real, as big a problem as people are making out. I mean, it keeps us pundits uh, punditizing. On the other hand, it hasn't changed. 
And now, Roger, switching over to the Democratic side, it's a much smaller field. President Biden is still leading there, despite his age coming under increasing scrutiny. There are more calls now, especially among polls, showing that Democratic voters are looking for a potential other candidate. Is that either VP Harris, RFK Jr., maybe California Governor Newsom, someone else? What's your take? My take is, I think, unfortunately, they're overlooking Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And I'm not, I, I, I can't understand why, because he's certainly more alive than Biden at the moment. But, it, but, and also, he has a lot of interesting things to say. He's an intelligent guy. But I don't think he's going to hit the nomination either. If I had, if I were a betting man, I would be betting on Michelle Obama right now. Because uh, because I, I think they're going to pull Biden probably later than earlier because pulling him earlier creates more problems for them than later. The later they do it, the more successful they're going to be in the general election, I think. And Roger, you mentioned Michelle Obama. What signs are you seeing for that? Well, one of them being a tennis fan, and this is the day of Djokovic's great triumph in New York, a day after. Uh, at the beginning of this tournament, we saw a fantastic uh, announcement of Michelle Obama. She was the one who got to get up to give the big speech to the New York audience uh, during the Billie Jean King celebration. Why was that? Well, I think it was in part because the I know that audience well because I'm a tennis fan and I've been several times, is that that audience is filled with rich liberal New Yorkers. The very people that a candidate would want to romance if they were running for president. So that was my first, well, not my first, but my strongest recent hint that she's the one. And now, zooming out a bit, what's at stake here for the Democrats if they lose the White House in 2024? Well, it could be very big trouble for the Democrats because the Democrats depend on what we like to call the deep state or the administrative state because for years they have been great supporters of that. If Trump comes in or Ramaswamy, both of whom are adamant enemies of the deep state, a lot of people are going to be out of jobs. And that's why I think you're finding tremendous anger and fear of Trump, because I, I think this second time around, he's not going to be as nice a guy uh, in terms of work. Not a nice guy personally, but a nice guy in terms of who gets a job than he was on the first time. Definitely a lot at stake here, Roger Simon. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. After nearly 60 years, new information that could change the account of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. A witness to the event is speaking out and refuting a key claim. Paul Landis is an 88-year-old former Secret Service agent. He was just a few feet from President John F. Kennedy when he was shot and killed in Dallas, Texas on November 22, 1963. At the time, Landis was assigned to protect the First Lady. Landis is now speaking out for the first time in 60 years. He was recently interviewed by the New York Times in preparation for his upcoming memoir, which will be published next month. According to the findings of the government's Warren Commission, a single bullet struck and exited Kennedy, but Ford struck then-Texas Governor John Connolly, who was riding with Kennedy. In his interview, Landis said he had heard multiple gunshots 
and after the assassination, Landis recalled picking up a bullet from the backseat of Kennedy's limousine, near where the president had been sitting. Landis described the bullet as being in near-perfect condition. To prevent the bullet from being lost, Landis said he took it and placed it on Kennedy's stretcher as he entered the hospital. The bullet was later found on what was believed to be Connolly's stretcher. And this is partly what led investigators to believe a single bullet hit both Kennedy and Connolly. Landis's revelation now casts doubt on the claim. Historian James Robinault, who helped work on Landis's memoir, said that if a single bullet didn't hit both Kennedy and Connolly, there may have been a separate shot, and that Landis's eyewitness account raises the possibility that there was more than one gunman. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Coming up, a four-time MVP makes his New York debut tonight on Monday Night Football. How will Aaron Rodgers fare against Buffalo? And 12 hidden pianos fill San Francisco's Botanical Garden with music. The outdoor concert hall treats visitors to an afternoon of melodies. We'll have details when we come back. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, we welcome NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, a big weekend in tennis with Coco Goff and Novak Djokovic taking home the U.S. Open titles. What did you make of it? Well, Goff, she's only 19. This could be started as something big for her. I mean, she has certainly been playing well of late, and now she finally got rewarded. I think everyone's so happy to see that. For Djokovic, I mean, this is just amazing. You know, he's been part of tennis's so-called big three with Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, but he's starting to distance himself from them. He's got four more major titles than Federer, two more than Nadal, plus he regained his number one ranking this week to extend his own record to 390 weeks now. He's got such a huge lead there, he should get well past 400, and he's still in his prime, amazingly. You know, he may not have the fanfare to back this up. I, I think it's safe to say he's the greatest ever. And now shifting gears to college football, were you surprised at the wins by Colorado and Texas? Well, not Colorado's. I mean, maybe the margin of victory, three touchdowns over Nebraska, that was pretty impressive. Texas, they surprised me. No, nobody goes to Alabama and do, does what they did. I mean, they rolled up 450 yards of offense, made it look pretty easy. Quinn Ewers was great, 350 yards passing. Three touchdowns, I was very impressed by that. They moved up into number four in the rankings. Bama fell back to number 10, um, and they do extend their record streak of 128 weeks in the top 10 now, but just barely. You know, this team is used to dominating. I think it'll be very interesting to see how they respond uh, from this loss. And now looking at the NFL, the Browns, Packers, and Cowboys each had convincing wins yesterday. Do you see any of them as Super Bowl contenders? Well, the Cowboys, if they play like they did last night, for sure, they just need to show this in the postseason. Uh, the Browns, they really, uh, they really shut down Joe Burrow and the Bengals. That was a pretty impressive. I mean, 82 yards passing for Joe Burrow on 31 attempts. That, that's shocking. But he has missed the entire preseason with an injury, so I would expect he's going to get better. Now, the Packers with Jordan Love, his debut, he looked great last night, three touchdowns. He's got some big shoes to fill in Green Bay, and that's going to be an ongoing storyline this whole season. And Dave, speaking of the Packers, their ex-quarterback Aaron Rodgers makes his New York debut tonight. What are you expecting in this one? 
Well, you know, Rodgers, he typically does very well on Monday Night Football. I believe he's won nine straight on that stage. You know, that could be a coincidence, maybe not. What he's so great at doing, uh, besides throwing touchdown passes, is not turning the ball over. He's led the NFL six times in lowest interception rate. But they go against a very tough Bills team. Uh, it's, I think it's going to be a really close game. But I think between Rodgers and that stout Jets defense, I think they have just enough to get past Buffalo. Well, Dave, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. An event called Flower Piano is returning to California for the eighth year, and it's once again transforming San Francisco Botanical Garden into the city's own alfresco concert hall, where everyone is invited to play and listen. NTD's David Jang went in search of the 12 hidden pianos in the 55-acre garden. The idea of placing 12 pianos into the Golden Gate Park was first conceived in 2015 by Dean Murmel and his co-founder, Mauro Fortissimo, at the Sunset Piano Project. Well, 12 is an amazing number. There's a 12-tone scale in music. Eight years later, Flower Piano has become much more organized and increased in popularity. We love hosting Flower Piano. It's our most popular event of the year. We see 60,000 people over five days. Twelve grand pianos are placed across the botanical garden, and visitors will find them in some of the most aesthetic natural settings. The music is beautiful, and the place is beautiful, and I want to come back next year. Other than classical music, visitors can hear anything from the Beatles, Elton John, jazz, tango, flamingo, to New Orleans. When there is no scheduled performance, anyone can hop on a piano and play their favorite tunes during open playtime. Some bring their instruments like violin, guitar, banjo, rumba to have a spontaneous duet on the spot. From, you know, eight years old to 80 years old and everyone is in great spirits listening to amazing music. It's a beautiful, beautiful day to be in San Francisco. <laughs> it's a more beautiful than Carnegie Hall. We had perfect weather today, nice party out there. It was jam-packed, bathrooms were clean. It's a total success. The event runs till Tuesday, September 12th, and is free to everyone on that day. For garden hours, people can visit www.sfbg.org. And if you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.